This is Cinema Degeneration. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. I, I just can't take no pleasure in killing. Just some things you gotta do. We all go a little mad sometimes. You wanna know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? You just can't let them go? Go! Hi, I'm Jackie. Wanna play? <laughs> Please, God. This is God. The dead will walk here. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Your suffering will be legendary even in hell. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive. They all blow down here. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Boy, you're doomed. On our show tonight, Howling Under the Full Moon, we will explore Charles Band's Empire Full Moon Entertainment. We've got trancers, sci-fi epics, and vampires all in one place. When you need a break from reality, let our host show you through the madhouse of killer bombs, psychopathic cookies, and maniacal puppets. Don't be a squid and join us in the fun. In the dark past, humans were their prey, and blood was their life. I'm Prado. I'm Tim before. Killing begins again. Now in modern day Transylvania, eternal evil has reawakened. <laughs> folks welcome to cinema g generations howling at the full moon we are several episodes deep this evening and we are going to be reviewing the 1991 sci-fi horror vampire classic subspecies directed by ted nicklau the imdb synopsis well i'm getting ahead of myself i'm not i didn't introduce our guest i'm being an asshole excuse me (laughs) (laughs) welcoming once again our full moon resident expert Dustin Hubbard, welcome to the show again. Sorry about not introducing you. That's okay. That's okay. I'm just How's super excited. I was just running forward. I'm like subspecies, subspecies. What? Yeah, we're we're talking about one of the pillars of the company tonight, so it's understandable to be uh, to be giddy. So, uh, I broke out the the box set where I got all four in the DVD box set with uh, vampire journals. And I'm going to eventually oh, nice. just work my way through them over the next week or two here. But it was fun getting to uh, 
revisit it. I hadn't watched it in a few years. Now, part two and part three, I've seen more times than I can count, but part one has been a little while. Same. I've definitely seen two and three more than any of uh, the others. One, four, or vampire journals. I don't like to overly count it, but I guess it counts. I mean, it, it, it does count, but it, it there's no Radu, you know? So to me, it's just kind of, it's just a spinoff. And it's a good spinoff. Yeah. It, it's a good movie. But uh, I just look upon it as his own little separate en- entity. And that just the Ash, Ash character happens to pop up in Subspecies 4 is all. It's a crossover series. It's much like, um, you know, Dollman versus Demonic Toys or Puppet Master versus, versus Demonic Toys. Definitely. It's like the bad channels of... The subspecies <laughs> world. Yes, yes. yes <laughs> if that is. makes sense. But yeah, I think the bad channel is superior. <laughs> For me. I do too. I, I, you know, well, you know, you know, that's my opinion too, because that was the first movie we did here on the show. Because mm-hmm. that was that's one of my favorites, is Prime Era. But speaking of uh Prime Era, we got subspecies 1991. Ted Nicolau directed, written by Charles Ban and Jackson Barr. Uh, and I think there was one more person, but I only wrote down two names. Wait, nope, it was D- David Pavian, and tra- based yep. always on always based on an original idea by Charlie Band. And we will give you the brief IMDb synopsis, which reads as follows: Three students get caught in the struggle between a good vampire and his evil brother in the Transylvanian mountains. Very simple and pretty much the the gist of the story, although you don't really find out until a good chunk of the way into the movie that, uh, you know, our infamous Radu, you know, Radu is is this movie's uh, subspecies version of Dracula. He is the titular character. Uh, And Radu, God, you know, I'll take Radu over uh, any Dracula character any day of the week. You know, I see people debating online you know lost boys are near dark or uh you know christopher lee versus bell lugosi and you know and i am not knocking any of those guys whatsoever i'm always that like but what about my man radu <laughs> he definitely doesn't get as much credit as he should that's for sure he's probably the scariest looking vampire he's the the the, the creepiest the most demonic devilish looking vampire Probably since, I mean, the original Nosferatu. And that's really the best way to kind of describe his look. He has the elongated fingers with the extra digits and the long claws, the really angular fangs, and the and he basically looks very undead. He, he's not a pretty vampire. He's not a modern-day sparkly kind of vampire, none whatsoever. But uh, our Radu is played by Anis Hovig. Hey, I might have pronounced that right, might not. Who knows? <laughs> but he is the reason to watch this movie. If there's two reasons to watch this movie, one is locations, 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 because it is beautifully shot. The The interiors, the exteriors, the the castles, everything is, is so beautiful to look at. And Honest is, is the next reason. You know, would you agree those are probably the two biggest reasons to watch these ser- the series of movies? Oh, definitely. There, There's really no comparison. So. No, and they have a look like no, no other Full Moon movie. They're very, you know, a very niche kind of thing in Full Moon. I think even, you know, the people that like 
maybe are not full moon fans per se. And if you're not shame on you, but <laughs> I think people that are not uh, full moon fans can, I don't know. I think would, would if given the, the chance to see these films would appreciate them because they have a very, uh, you know, a very classic monster feel to them, you know, not, not maybe so much, you know, universal monster era, but like, it seems to be lost in a limbo between universal monster era and hammer films. Yes. And especially with, I don't want to get off too much on the sequels. Cause we're just talking about subspecies one tonight, but you know, with the introduction of mummy coming along in the second mm-hmm. and third, movies, I love mummy. Mummy's such a great character. And, you know, we may just at some point, like talk about certain characters in full moon and just have character centric shows. First, first episode is going to have to be about mummy. <laughs> mummy is a great character. I think one of the most fascinating things about the the first two sequels is um, Mummy and Radu's relationship when she comes back to the castle. <laughs> because he wants, he's like a rebellious child that's a grown, grown man who wants to do his own thing, but he lives in absolute utter fear of his mother. <laughs> so... As well he should, because um, sure. Mummy's scary as shit. She's scary as shit. <laughs> but we open up this movie with a beautiful castle shot against the night sky. And then we we fall on a shot of the one, the only, the phantasm tall man, Angus Scrim, as Lord Vadislas. And he's drinking from, we, well, we don't really know what the bloodstone is yet, but the bloodstone is a relic that bleeds the blood of all the saints as we'll find out later on from an old gypsy woman in the, later on in the movie but he's drinking from it he looks very aristocratic he, he looks at first you know when i remember first saw the movie I, I thought he was like playing like george washington or something like that one of those era of guys i was just like what is this and i'm like oh okay i got like okay I, I see what it is we got nosferatu guy in the background here you know i didn't quite know what i was in for the first time i saw this as a kid as an adult i just looked yeah huh? that first thing that jumps out at you to me is that that preposterous wig oh that big like very poofy plush ball kind of wig. yeah like, it's like it's like an it's like a like there are movies in the full moon canon where they have used some preposterously out of place wigs, and this is like ground zero for where they started <laughs> is, <laughs> is, is on Angus Scrim's head because like the the hairdo on the on the king's head is just goofy looking, but right. It's very out of place. Like he looks very aristocratic, and, you know, and very pale and very sleek looking in his his robe and everything. But like, yeah, that wig is just. Whew, I don't know what the aesthetic choice of that was, but you know, I I I, I don't know, I and mean, maybe we'll never know who chose that wig. But that was not a not a good choice there. <laughs> <laughs> but then we get the introduction of our main bad guy. Radu Vladislas, the son of the king. And um, I don't think they ever mentioned the king by name. He's always just known as King Vladislas, isn't he? Yeah, I believe he's just in the in the film. He's referred to as the, the king. Yeah. Or, or as honest so. calls, calls him father. You know, that's <laughs> well, about father, the best. Yes. Yeah, so. that, that's about it. That's about the, yeah, only, about the only 
uh, <clears throat> line I could say it as uh, Radu, and I did not do it any kind of justice whatsoever. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think he's out there me. Yeah, I think he's basically just the king in the movie or father, but, you know, the common sense, I think, dictates for us down the line as far as, like, even on IMDb where he's actually billed as King, king Vladislav. So, you know. But, it is what it is. And, yeah. and he's Angus Grimm. Why does he need to be called anything besides the king? Because it's like, obviously he is. But we enter Radu... He's the baddest motherfucking vampire ever. I'm sorry, pardon my language, but not really. You know, uh, the father, you know, has a little altercation with Radu. You know, he's the, very much the prodigal son coming home. Father traps Radu in a cage, and, like, we get our first real glimpse of just how powerful and how maniacal Radu is. He takes his his hands with, like, the, the elongated fingers and snaps his fingertips right off. Not his fingernails. His, like, fingertips off at the first digit. Just snaps several of them off, and we have a really nice morphing uh, stop-motion animation effect. Good, once again, good Dave Allen work. And they turn into the subspecies. They become these little little demon minions. And, and let's face it, you know, what makes Radu so badass are the are the subspecies. You know, the the little everybody should have a little mini demon dudes, you know, working for them. I mean, they kind of look like uh the, the creatures from the gate. Yes, they do actually. But, you know, I, I've come to the realization also, and I've made a note here, and God, help me for it. Um, I've come <laughs> to the realization that over time, Mickey Rourke has slowly revolved or evolved into Radu. Just <laughs> by his face. He, all he needs is just to get rid of that, that sheen of tan that he has on him, and put on the pale makeup, and Mickey Rourke has become Radu. He has just, had quite a physical transformation. <clears throat> and, you know... Radu himself will as well as t- as the films go go forth because his his uh, design as far as facial structure and stuff does change <laughs> so especially drastically once you get to part four. Yeah, it's very different from two and well two and three they did back to back, so the makeup was very it's similar. Pretty, I think. They, yeah. Yeah, it's very consistent through those two films, but yeah, from two and three. That transition to four is very drastic. I, in four, I, it's, his skull almost looks like it's too big for the skin that it's in in part four. Yeah, it does. His skin is, yeah, well, it looks like the skin is stretched against his, his skull and his bones so much like it's just, like you said, like it's too big. So he's like a male vampire Morgan Fairchild. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's terrible. That's great, but that's terrible. <laughs> You see it. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 maybe, I pictured it in uh, my head when you said it. So I John like, Rivers. Yeah. And... <laughs> John oh, Rivers. Uh, have you ever seen the side by side of Joan Rivers next to Blade? No, no, I haven't. Once you have, you'll never get it out of your mind. She looked like a a life size Blade doll with her her God, massive her massive Zidar jawline. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned Zadar as a follow-up movie to subspecies today while I was working around the house. I watched Maniac Cop 3. And just it was suggested on Tubi, and I'm just like, you know, don't fucking mind if I do. 
part three. <laughs> yeah, but part three. Yeah, that well, that was, that was the one that was suggested. So I was just like, "What the hell? Why not watch the worst one of the series?" You know. <laughs> never boring. I'll give you that. Oh no, it's never boring. Uh, definitely not. I, uh, I could get off in that movie for, for for hours, but we'll save that for another show. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, back back to Radu, uh, <laughs> snapping his fingers off, creating the subspecies. Yeah, that's what we were on. That's what we were talking about. Um, it's a great effect. Uh, I, I I love the little minion dudes, and they but they let Radu out of his cage, and Radu kills his father. And you know, for someone who's supposed to be the king vampire, he died very easily. And he, he did. It's just a very basic, like, stab to the gut, and he's finished. Right. <laughs> it didn't even really seem to me like he stabbed him in the heart, like that little, that little knife that he had. It wasn't really mm-hmm. even in the chest where it could have been in the heart. It was just he scrambled his guts a little bit and just dropped them. I, I didn't quite get that. It is what it is, and this really the last time we see... Uh, any of Angus except for one shot later on in the movie where he's laying dead on the floor and his brother finds him. But uh, pretty much after that, we get the introduction of Laura May Tate as Michelle. And I think it, it bears mentioning that in, there are f- three official sequels to subspecies are released now and a fifth one in the works where Laura May Tate did not play Michelle, who is a reoccurring character in every single one of the sequels, but in the sequels, she's played by Denise Duff. Um, I've never I've never known, and maybe you do, being our resident expert, but was there a reason that they didn't cast Laura May Tate in the sequels? Uh, you know, I do not recall an exact reason uh, why they went in that direction with a new person. I think it's just one of those weird... You know, maybe it's one of the mysteries to to time for Full Moon, kind of like how, you know, randomly instead of uh, the the little band girl, we got um, Nurse Ginger in the Versus movie. <laughs> it was just oh, done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they went uh, from um, Bad Channels to Dollman versus Demonic Toys. Yes. Yep. So <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've never heard if if she didn't want to do it or if uh, they just decided to get someone else i don't know but it, it actually i think uh tate is actually good i think she's actually a, a a good sympathetic actress in the first movie though uh but denise is good also so they're both good in their own unique ways so yes. but denise ended up being the one who became you know known for it and rather iconic for the franchise yeah, she, I mean, she ends up becoming, you know, as about as as iconic, if not as much so, as uh, Radu. Yep. But uh, I think with the, this version of Michelle, Laura May Tate is, has a certain more angelic kind of quality to her. She's not tainted by the evil yet, but like when Denise is brought in at the, you know, by the sequels, which, you know, we obviously do spoilers here, so... If you don't want to be have any spoilers, uh, you're at the wrong show. But uh, <laughs> in the end of this movie, when you know Michelle is turned and whatnot, you know she's already tainted by the evil and struggling with it in two, three, and four. And I think Denise rides that fine line of having the angelic qualities and the devilish qualities as you know she's kind of being taken over by Radu. So you Definitely. know, 
that might have been an aesthetic they were thinking of, or maybe it was just a happy accident. But I kind of uh, it's it's one of the few times in in a series of movies where I didn't quite mind the casting change so much, you know. But at the same time, there's a casting change in subspecies for that. <laughs> I, I that is more bothersome than the casting change in two and three. But we'll get in again. We'll get into that another time. There is. <laughs> Yeah, there's another casting change. Imagine that. Looking at you, Charlie. We want to know why. <laughs> I re- refresh my memory briefly. Who is it in part four that's recast? Wasn't it, uh, or they don't recast, but they get rid of, uh, sorry, they get rid of uh, M- Michelle's sister. Oh, they, uh, well, they, yeah, yeah. I These, forgot. One, one that's that's what it? I was alluding to. That was, I, I should have yes. been clear on that. I'm I, sorry. I, no, no, you're good. I think one one butte that you can say about Angus Scrim's career is is that the franchises he's in, the sequels tend to like to end on zingers, you know, you know, the movies like to end on zingers and then open with real like show stopping moments of like, haha, you like these characters? Fuck them, they're dead. We're going this direction now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Coscarelli and Nicolau, they they work in kind of the same way. Totally. But anyway, back to back to what we were talking about. Uh, Laura May Tate's Michelle's very very good, very good actress, but she did not follow up with any of the sequels. But she shows up at Michelle with her friend Lillian from America, America to meet with their friend Mara uh, in Transylvania, and they're you know they're, they're meeting up. They're just girls studying medieval history and vampiric lore. And, you know, the first thing I thought of when they got in, when they all get together at the train station was that car they were in was dying. It was clacking out. It was rattling. It was smoking so bad. I I was just like, you know, like the only thing that was missing in this movie was a scene where like the car broke down. I was going to say, well, welcome to 1991 Romania, baby. <laughs> That's. <laughs> That's like, I mean, the the buildings had like bullet holes in them, like everything was falling apart, like it was post-war, you know, wreckage. <laughs> so everything was broken down. Oh, that was probably the best they could get. And and yep. I was going to say they filmed the first four movies all in Romania, didn't they? I believe so, yes. Yeah, I thought they did all four. I know the first three for sure, but I wasn't sure about part four. But, but I it's four was yeah. I was kind of on the, uh, yeah, they yeah they were all in the same same areas as far as I recollect. So it wasn't five won't be so, but that'll yeah, be part all. five was going to be in Serbia, I think. Of from what? <laughs> yeah, they'd originally planned on it being Albania, but none of the. Uh, Ted Nicolau did some location scouting and wasn't happy with a lot of the castle locations that were accessible. So they're looking at possibly Serbia now, Serbia, you know, Croatia, and those kinds of countries. So that's probably the, the area to be in if they're looking for that kind of that kind of locations. But yep. speaking of locations again, the, this movie it's so beautifully shot. Uh, for a movie that's shot in 1990s, it definitely has that look in the color schematic of uh, or the color scheme, if you will, of a movie shot in the 70s. It has a very, you know, well, I mean, obviously European feel to it, but it just has, like, you know, for a movie shot in 91, it feels like it could be 1968. Yeah. 
And it is, it is very uh, important to note that the first subspecies movie is actually the first American film production that ever came to Romania. So, whereas since then we've had like probably thousands of productions there, but subspecies one is uh, the first. So when they went there to do it, it was very much, uh, you know, an experience. <laughs> so, oh, I bet, I, I bet that was uh, there was never a dull month. Yeah, it wasn't as structured and organized as it as it later became because they were living in literally like you know in the middle of post Ceausescu, you know, like fall of communism, Romania. So things were still very tense and crazy. So, bet there was never a dull moment though. I don't uh, doubt that. <laughs> that was. Uh, I remember uh, watching the video zone and they were saying how, how hard it was to even just make a phone call back then to try to call back the States and talk to your family. Oh yeah. And, you have to like go down and like have them try and like put in a request and get a line out and you'd like wait around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we get to our, we get to our main setting here. Speaking of locations, locations, the, uh, the castle that is uh, being, Caretaken by Ivan Rado, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, as Carl. He's such a commanding presence, and I had to look him up because I knew he looked familiar, and I knew I recognized him from somewhere. I'm, uh, in addition to being a big Full Moon fan, I'm a big Western fan, and he was in The Wild Bunch. I I, I, I knew I recognized him like as like very much a younger character, <laughs> but I'm like, there's something in the eyes there. But he's a very commanding present, very physically dis- yeah, he, impo- imposing. He has a very powerful look, and he he was in like some old Santo movies, and he I always remember him as being the uh, the merchant in subspe or not subspecies puppet master two in the flashback sequence in Cairo. He's the one who gives Andre oh. Toulon the secret. To life. Oh yeah. No. Um, it's funny um, that you mentioned the Santo movies. Those just DVR the other day for no reason. I don't <laughs> know why I ended up on my DVR, but like three of them were on there. So I probably nice. have another movie with him on there somehow. It, it's a sign. <laughs> yes. But he, but uh, Carl is showing the girls around. The it's basically used to be a monastery. You find out a little bit of backstory as he's shown them around and we'll get into the backstory a little bit later on with the uh the gypsy lady that shows up but basically you know that you find out that there's a festival coming along in a few days as celebrating the night where the vampires saved the village against a turkish army and at least that's what everybody wink wink believes you know and but we all we we, we know how that ends up in a full moon movie <laughs> but as he's showing them around, you know, we, we got to mention the the complete attic full of off, coffins that they have, that, like this above their room. He's showing them a little, I think he says it was like a, a defensive wall that was like around their room. So he's showing them around the, the, the place and in the attic is a bunch of coffins. I mean, it, it just, they just look upon that like that's just totally normal. They're, they're not even put off by it. They're in Romania or in uh, uh, Transylvania, mind you. And there's coffins in their attic. 
these people never, they are there, you know, investigating <laughs> vampiric lore. Shouldn't they have been a little bit more concerned about that, you think? You know, I I would be a bit more concerned about things like that, yeah, but... <laughs> Especially if it was above my room. But whatever. Yeah, that, that would be bothersome for me, but apparently it's just another day in Romania for them, so... <laughs> And then we get another shot of Radu, always drooling blood. He is a drooly, a very drooly, nasty vampire. I, that's the one thing I've never, I, as much as I love vampire movies, and I, I don't mean this to sound like I'm I'm picking on them or or, give, or sliding them, but they're very wasteful with the blood. They, they, you know, for blood being the life, they're always very wasteful of it, and especially Radu. He just, like, you know, he's sucking on the bloodstone, draining it dry, and... It just letting it drool out and going everywhere. If this was supposed yeah. to be blood of the saints, you wouldn't think he would waste it so much. <laughs> Save every drop. That's what I think makes Radu a little um, like more unique than most any other movie vampires in history is, is that he's just, he's dirty and he's uncouth. And that like, he doesn't care if he's got like giant globs of like blood slobber oozing down his face. Yeah, because he never cleans up. He, no, he's a he, just, he, he just doesn't care. He does what he does what he wants. <laughs> like he, he's a he's a nasty, dirty bastard, and he absolutely doesn't care. And that is part of the, I think of uh, it's almost I have to say this is sexy kind of allure that he has. He has a way of, okay. of moving and talking and speaking that's just very enticing. Whether you're a man or a woman, is there's, there's something enticing about about him as dirty as he is. You know. Yep. Yep. But the girls go messing around at Castle Vladislaus, mentioning that, you know, nobody talks about the place and there's no mentioning of it. But, of course, they're there. And Radu wakes up. He's, you know, he, he sees the girls and, you know, he's just as enticed as any, uh, you know, man, I guess, would be. He sees pretty much the way I would figure it. He sees fresh meat coming to his castle. So he nips one of the girls on the arm you don't really see it it's all kind of alluded to but you really know what happens they're they're trying to force the door i guess of the entrance to its castle and mm-hmm. nips uh was it lillian right the, that he nips on the arm i believe so yeah i get i get lillian and mara mixed up mara's the 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 girl that's actually yeah. romanian girl yeah, or the actual romanian. foreign girl yeah but then we get uh, the idea that there's somebody else in the castle where the girls are st- staying that's supposed to be uh, another professor or another student of some sort that's you know, working on a paper. But it's actually Stefan. Radu's much uh, more attractive, much prettier uh, brother, half-brother, I guess you could <laughs> say, who met... Michelle just makes bedroom eyes at him the minute she sees him. You can see it's like an instant attraction. And he's not really trying. He's not. He's a very, um, it's the term I'm looking for here, a very reluctant vampire character. Mm-hmm. He's the, exactly the opposite of Radu in every way. He's he's very, he's like how you said, um, you know, Radu is very uncouth and whatnot. He, he, you know, Stefan is the exact opposite of that. He's very gentlemanly, very proper and tries to, uh, I guess you can say, control the animal within, so to speak. Yeah, he's, he's very restrained and not, yeah, he's he's not, he's not overly, he's not rude, but he's not overly friendly and 
you know, chatty with people. <laughs> kind of wants to keep to himself, he seems. Yeah, he's just very private. He, you know, he's, ve- he's very nice. He's ve- very, uh, you know, polite to the girls. But he's just like, you know, nope, I'm sorry. I don't have time. I got to get back to my studies. But, you know, y'all basically y'all have a good evening. And he just he leaves them. Yep. And <clears throat> you find out in a little bit. A little bit more from the the old gypsy woman that the girls talked to that the gypsies made a truce. This is the note that I made that they made a truce with the vampires after they had saved them from the Turkish army. That somebody like they didn't exactly say who, but that somebody had went out of the castle when this army was supposed to be at their door and everybody was just dead. Throat slit, (laughs) drained of blood and you know, as you know, legend has it, the vampires are the ones that killed them. And they were bequeathed to them. They were given their own land. They were allowed to, you know, kind of like a truce where they would stay on their own land and not bother anybody. But they were given the bloodstone, which, again, bleeds the blood of the saints. And it's very addictive and it's very powerful. And it gives the vampires, you know, their powers and whatnot. And it was given to the king who was killed at the beginning of the film by his renegade son, Radu. Yeah. So one one weird thing that I noticed upon this rewatch too was that backstory with the vampires i noticed a later parallel because i recently watched witch house 2 and in the backstory they give you of the witch lilith lafay and that they talk about how this the town had been beset by a great sickness that started decimating the population and the townsfolk entered into an unholy pact with a coven of witches that lived out in the forest. And they promised to get rid of the sickness if they were promised clemency for their crimes against God. And they did it. But then they yeah, were they- double-crossed. And then, of course, you know, the witches get their revenge again. So I was like, hmm, that kind of is... Uh, <laughs> kind of reminds me of this backstory here a little bit. So... And, and what what does it prove once again that people are the real monsters because the people don't keep their word and they mess everything up yeah, in these stories. Yeah. They're always traitors. <laughs> even yeah. when they even when the the bad guys actually keep their end of the bargain, the, the humans end up being the the real monster of the of the story. It happens that way every time, and I think there's there's something to be said about that. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Like, like maybe people are the real monsters i don't know i'm sure there's a whole show about that i'd be willing to bet money on it oh yeah i'm sure (laughs) and by this point we should mention another uh outstanding part of the movie i don't know who i didn't write it down and i forgive me for not knowing you'll probably know uh who did the music for this because the music is phenomenal it's very much just tones and kind of chords and whatnot. I mean, for the most part, it's not even songs, really. But the ambient music is this uh-huh. it's fucking chilling. I, I love the soundtrack, and I, I I have it on LP. It is it's a yeah. great soundtrack. The sound, you know, it it does have very uh, powerful sound design. Um, I know that. A lot of the music, it's especially the main theme and stuff like that, are credited to uh, something called the Amman Folk Orchestra. But I believe that that was kind of a um, front name, you know, for 
uh, an individual or two. There wasn't an actual orchestra, you know, like a full orchestra. There might have been, but um, the the music itself was, to my knowledge, uh, performed by uh, Kyrian Corona and William Levine. So I'm assuming they they themselves probably make up what what the film credited credits as the Amon Folk Orchestra. But yeah, that's great music. It accompanies the movie so well. It sets such a it's just very unsettling, and it's 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 a great theme. To, you know, with a character like Radu, I did also make a note that although I've never listened to the song, I want to seek it out afterwards. Uh, a Swedish black metal band named Marduk made a song and called Nightwing in 1998. I got this off the IMDb. And it's the cover, the main theme from species, subspecies, and the song itself is about Radu. So I made a note of that, and I'm probably going to listen to that after the show is over tonight, because I just made a note of it and didn't get to it during the day today was part of my practice. But I just found that interesting that a metal band did a Radu cover, so more power to them. I hope it's good. <laughs> Definitely interesting. But then what do we get? What's the next scene? Really, the, the girls over basically oversleep and get caught out at night and they run into Radu. They see him in the night slurping on the bloodstone. He's always slurping on that bloodstone. He's like a damn junkie with it, but they end up getting saved by Stefan, who then later uh, finds out that his father, you know, the, the King vampire had been murdered, who is now, Radu's there. He reveals that, you know, the the secret that they're Radu and Stefan are brothers. And there's a, this is the point I made a note in, in my pages and notes here, that the biggest improvement upon this movie with the sequels was the overall look in the construction of the Bloodstone. I, I don't yes. really... I don't really like the the, 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 bullets, the Bloodstone in the first movie, the look of it. It's just... It's, it's unimpressive. Very, it's very cheap looking. I'm yes. sure it was a very expensive prop to make, but um, what we ended up with in the sequels are far superior in look and design, and the actual uh, construct of it changed too. Because whereas in the first film, it's basically like a base with the red kind of pear-shaped top, and it just sort of bleeds out the top. Uh, in the second and third one, it's like a very beautifully, like it looks like kind of like uh, blown glass. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it, yeah. Like, it looks like a, a very uniquely designed fine crystal at, on a very nice uh, rock looking base. But then it has like the great design of the 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 claws, the claw. Yeah. It, basically they, around they, it, kind of holding it in place. It looks like Radu's claws, like mini brass yeah. copper versions it, of Radu's claws wrapped yeah. around. It definitely looks the best, in my opinion, in two and three. The look in part four is still better than part one, but they took the idea of part two and three, but it looks far more geometric, if that makes sense. It looks yeah, far yeah, more angular and there's a lot lot more sharp um yeah it looks more dangerous 
it's very square and clunky looking <laughs> instead of like natural and organic and kind of whereas in parts two and three i think it actually does have kind of a magical look to it yeah it does it, it, it looks like something that it could easily been brought of like a you know, a movie like Sword and the Sorcerer or mm. Conan the Barbarian, something, you know, some bit of treasure from some era like that. Definitely. But in the scuffle and everything that's going on with the reveal that Stefan is actually Radu's brother, Radu nips uh, Lillian at one point, and then we're right off that, right after that, into Festival Night, which I, I found the festival sequences to be very creepy in and of themselves all the masks that the, the townspeople in the village were wearing were very creepy you know and you know they're just celebrating but it's just like you kind of whenever you have a large gathering of people with a bunch of halloween kind of style type masks like that you, i'm i'm always on edge in a movie even if oh, i had already seen it and i know what's coming yeah a lot of that powerful music comes into play in those sequences too with like the very intense sort of like gypsy sounding music i guess uh playing that's yeah. uh it's just very intensely energetic sounding <laughs> but yeah radu shows radu shows up at the unannounced and uninvited but for him it doesn't have, doesn't matter if he's invited or not and he, that the rule seems to kind of <laughs> thankfully out outside so he doesn't have to <laughs> get invited yeah that's true that's true although i don't think when he enters the other building either he hasn't really been invited inside there either uh, at the points when you see him feeding on one of the girls so maybe those rules don't apply for uh subspecies vampires well i just know there's the one part later on where stefan is helping carl and michelle fight against radu and carl has to invite stefan over the threshold he's like you, you, when he even says something to the effect you're invited to cross the threshold before he mm -hmm. can enter the building but maybe radu is just that powerful where he can go wherever he wants he is the I'm first one <laughs> <laughs> yeah here you go but that's weird, though, too, because whereas Radu is born of a vampire and a, and a sorceress. Oh, that's and right. Yeah. Because Mummy is was a very powerful, presumably a very powerful dark sorceress. And Stefan was born from a vampire and a human woman. Yes, maybe so, that's exactly why those rules don't apply to Radu. That's possible. So there's some interesting family dynamics there. <laughs> Dr. Phil would have a heyday. Oh, God. I can't <laughs> imagine Dr. Phil trying to talk to the fucking Vladislav's family. That would... I can't stand Mom, hearing that man speak in the first place. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that would also explain, you know, uh, a lot of how powerful Radu is because, you know... You know, they, they slice them, they dice them, they chop them up and do everything you can imagine to them in every movie. In every movie, all four films so far. And I can probably guarantee you, you're going to see a bit of that in part five. If there's anything that I can guarantee you'll see is Radu getting his ass handed to him. But he always bounces back. You know, it's what should be mortal wounds to any creature, you know, uh of this world or not, <laughs> you know, being burned at the stake, being chopped up into pieces that should, you know, take you out is just a minor inconvenience to him. 
and that's yeah, part of yeah it's part of why i love radu he, like i said he's just a bad motherfucker there's no other way to put it <laughs> yep. but <laughs> yeah well, yeah there's no there's no stopping him he he is well he even says i am forever child yep. you know so but uh radu it does uh bear repeating again he does take out the the old gypsy lady that was causing trouble with the girls the the one that was giving them mess giving them uh information and whatnot you know on the the festival but you know she quickly realizes that as i think she says at one point in the movie you know they they have brought the devil with them or they have awakened the devil meaning radu but so who does Radu take out? He takes out the old gypsy woman who I forget the name of the character, but I again. never remember her name. <laughs> <laughs> and she's a great character, but I never remember. I, I, I don't even know if they like call her by name. She might, might have just been the old crown. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's actually on IMDb. She is actually billed as old crown Lily Dumitrescu. Yeah. yeah. She's just built his old crown. And actually a shot of her from what looks like the movie is actually her IMDb profile picture. <laughs> That's great. She's a great <laughs> character. It, it's a, a classic kind of Universal Monsters era type of character. That's what I, I, I love about it. Totally. She's like the doom. She's like, it's like the old school version of like Crazy Ralph. <laughs> yeah, she is the harbinger, harbinger of doom. Hello. Now, this is the one part now I, I watched it over. I, I actually rewound it while I was watching it today and watched this five minute sequence or over again. And maybe you, you can clarify something for me because this is really the one problem I have with this movie as far as like continuity goes. There was a point where I'm going to, I'm going to say this before you say it. There was a point around the festival where I actually rewound it twice because <laughs> I wanted to rewatch how something played out. So you go ahead and say it. Well, Radu um, shows up with a mask, and he's stalking Mara, character, the girl who is from Romania. He takes her. He he captures her under under. I mean, it's he's not even very sneaky about it, but he captures her and takes her away. It cuts. Michelle is leaving. Had left Mara there to get back to the castle to check on Lillian because she was worried about her. But by the time they get back to the house or get back to the castle, they open the door. Radu is feasting on Lillian and he shrinks away in one of those great, you know, one of those great shots I love. We'll talk about it yeah. a little bit. The the shadowy shots where Radu just kind of turns into a shadow and fades away. Yes. But like that, that's the problem I have. Like how was, did Radu take Mara back to the castle where he's at and then make the way from the Vladislav's castle to where, the girls are staying to drink more blood from Lillian. Yes, that is exactly why I rewound it twice. <laughs> because <laughs> I felt like I might have turned away and missed something briefly because there's a weird lapse in time between him attacking Mara and then feasting on uh, Michelle McBride's character. It makes yeah. no sense at all. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense I'm how he how he got behind. there. Yeah, I mean, I guess he's a vampire, so if he does the goo, you know, and like they expand into a shadow, he can move fast like the wind and maybe just mater materialize. I guess, but it just I don't know. Visually, it just looked like 
I don't remember it playing out like that because I never recall questioning the flow of that sequence in the in the past. <laughs> but rewatching it today, it didn't feel like it flowed correctly. It felt like an editing mistake. It felt like there was a scene missing. Like it there was felt a, like some... there was something. Yeah, like there was something that wasn't there. Definitely, I agree. I I felt like I watched it for the first time at that point because I I, I rerounded at the exact same point. And I'm like, something feels missing here. Like, I feel like there's a scene I remember seeing here that was filler, something between these two. But mm-hmm. maybe with something we've just overlooked all these years. I'm not sure. But that, that was the one real problem I had with this movie. Otherwise, it, it's, it's very much a near perfect film for me. Definitely. But, but getting back to that, I don't want to detract from the film because we're all about the love and not about the hate here. But, you know, that, that was one thing I, I'm, I'm glad that you noticed it as well, too. And it wasn't just me because I like when I rewound it, I'm like, for sure, I just looked away. and must have looked at my phone for two minutes and missed something. And, and but nope, well, I guess it wasn't just me. No, definitely not. <laughs> but it's after this point where we actually find out in the movie that Radu's mother was an evil sorceress and that Angus, his father, was the vampire and that Radu and Stefan are actually only half-brothers and Stefan's mother was a mortal woman. And not too much long after that, you, you find out that Mara is still very much alive. Uh, Radu didn't kill her. He's keeping her hostage, but Lillian has now succumbed to her injuries. Uh, he's drained enough blood from her. He's poisoned her blood, and she's now on her way to becoming undead. You think she's dead, but, you know, in, in vampire movies, nobody's ever really dead. Very true. <laughs> not, not, not just Radu, but, I mean, everybody, you know. That's, that's just vampire lore. You know, dead doesn't mean dead a whole lot. But Carl and Michelle, they go to hunt down Radu's coffin. They figure if they can find his coffin during the daytime, they can kill him and put an end to all of it. It doesn't really work out that way. Uh, Lillian comes comes back from the dead, and Stefan gets captured trying to rescue Mara. It's, it's not a very good plan because Stefan doesn't really do, do well. Lillian's coming back from the dead. And, you know, it's at this point where everything from here on out pretty much takes place in the Vladislav's castle and i gotta say i i know i've already mentioned it several times but i made several notes here but uh gotta talk about vlad panescu uh, his cinematography work is one of the, the one of the, the main reasons to, to see this movie is so beautifully shot especially these shots in the castle in and around the vladislav's castle it's just yeah. amazingly elegant and ominous at the same time it's uniquely shot while, while the way it plays with shadows and light lighting and whatnot and mm-hmm. the shadowing effects i want to know how they shoot some of that stuff i would love to know the camera trick for that <laughs> i know that in some of the later sequels uh especially i want to say like two and three there they are actual computer animation aren't they i, I believe i think there's a, think there's a they, are, they are actual they do look like legit in in camera lighting effects though in this first film so but yeah vlad's camera work hats off to you brother that's one of the main reasons why i keep coming back to this this movie is just so pretty to look at but we're getting down to the nitty-gritty we're getting down to the the 
the meat and potatoes of the film here. This is the, you know, the, the final act. Everything's playing out so well. I mean, like, like we, we got Stefan getting captured. We got Lillian's back from the dead. Mara's back uh, turns on Michelle. It was Michelle's trying to save her. She She's now a vampire. So all her friends are vampires. Carl does his best to try to, I guess you could say, save the day. I mean, he does... Uh, take out he does take out Lillian so he uh-huh. doesn't do too bad but when he t- it, it is kind of funny it's not meant to be a funny moment but when he charges at Radu with that six foot stake the way that Radu just slaps it away as if it was a toothpick yeah. <laughs> it shows you just you know for this big brooding guy Carl really just you know he's nothing he's just a fly to him and we get Julie Julie Radu drooling blood all over Michelle is very gross <laughs> and he full on bites her in the neck. I mean, Carl interrupts and, and tries to save the day, but he's two seconds too late. And then we yep. get a, a big sword fight between Radu and Stefan. And normally I would say this would be a detractor from, you know, for a movie, you know, a, a very, it's a very non-elegant sword fight, you know, where they're just kind of, crashing in and over tables and going upstairs and cutting things off the wall and using everything around them, just chopping it up with these swords. It's it's not an elegant fight. It's a very much a a scrappy fight, but I liked it for that. But it's fitting for the type of character that Radu is, I think too, because he wouldn't be, I don't think he would be someone that would be a master. um, I guess, swordsman i don't i don't know what the correct terminology would be swordsman i was going to say fencer but uh swordsman i don't know if i don't know if he would be very uh taught in the ways of how to you know handle a broadsword you know right with a professional sheen i feel like he would just be clunky and dirty and just seem you know just damn dirty like play dirty you know and there'd be a lot of knocking shit over and chopping shit in half that probably wasn't the the point. <laughs> so, right. but I like that about Radu's fighting style is that that he doesn't really have a fighting style. He is just uh, a barbaric, as you put it, just just animal. He's animalistic. He's, he's it, it, barely even it, humanoid at all. You know, it adds to the idea that he's not like he's not this over over the top, all powerful villainous creature either you know what i mean because he's not perfect at fighting and sword fighting you know he has he has vulnerabilities and there are things that he might not actually be good at and a lot of that's actually more explored in in a lot of the sequels where you see that he's he actually is truthfully one of i think the more underappreciated multi-layered lead villains in in horror he really is because there's so many different facets to him that he is an obnoxious, hateful bastard. But he he has a lot of heart and things that you can feel empathy for as well, too. So, yeah, he's just he's very he's very, uh, very layered, I think. And things like that, like him not being a good sword fighter and things like that prove that. You know, he's there's more than just him being like this superpower of darkness. Right, right. He's not just this omnipotent evil being. He he has, you know, that's all powerful. He has faults. 
And exactly. you, you kind of love him for his faults. Like his anger gets the better of them. That's one of his faults. Exactly. He yes, is controlling. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, yeah. He cannot control it at all. Another he's thing. Can't, can't. Yeah. And he's, <laughs> he should have been taught. He should have been taught better by mummy. And that's another thing about him that we've already touched base on, but I'll touch base on it again, is he is, you'll find out in the sequels, deathly afraid of his mother. Like, she instills the the fear of some sort of God into him. And, you know, I I love that dynamic. Here's the character that's the baddest motherfucker on the planet, but he's afraid of his mom. And I think that's something that everybody can and damn well should uh be able to identify with because no matter how big of a badass you are everybody is is or at least should be afraid of their mother (laughs) she was horror's original smother mother (laughs) (laughs) more far before there was ever a uh you know time timeline wise far before there was ever a uh mrs Voorhees or anything like that of you know these characters you know where they uh live in fear of their mother or fear or worship of their mother he he was living in fear of his mother for centuries so yeah. fear of the day that she would return home <laughs> so from whatever and then she fucking does. She's doing and then she does and she's basically like hey she basically kind of does what radu does in part four she shows up and she's like hey i'm living here now this is my shit right and, and then uh, he does great- in part four when he arrives at, at ashes estate and he's like no nah, these are all Vladislav property um i'm taking back my shit you're my bitch yep. yeah so, <laughs> i'm taking your woman you're gonna be my dog and this this stuff is all mine now this is yep. all my shit so we but can yeah, that-, that mentality in part four because he <laughs> it's probably learned behavior from her <laughs> um, he takes, you know, whether he takes after his mother or his father, he's got the the worst of, of both of both sides, you know. But yeah, yeah, he he's, you know, we get Julie Julie Radu again, fighting with Stefan, and Stefan takes out Lillian in uh, by what cutting the rope to a, a chandelier that drops on her and that crushes her. And he's sick. I have to you know, say, I I rewound that a couple times too because it. I don't remember it being so brutal feeling. Me either. It looks, it looks really painful and it hits with like serious force. Like it actually hurt to watch. So like I was I was given a thumbs up for the uh the stunt woman or or stunt man on that because I had to, that it just did, it looked like a stunt gone wrong like it like the person, whoever it was, probably got a little hurt. I imagine maybe you know they know what they're doing. They didn't, but sometimes it just, yeah, yeah, just looked like a stunt going gone wrong to me. Yeah, it it honestly, yeah, because one of my thoughts after it was I was like, man, like I wonder if that person was okay. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I was thinking kind of the same thing, but yeah, because it looks it looks rough, but it, it's effective, so. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 that effective. I I didn't go back and watch it over again, but I probably should. But yeah. he saves, uh, he manages to save Lillian at the or not save Lillian, save Michelle from Lillian at the last minute by dro- dropping that chandelier on her. And then they take on uh, Radu and they take a flaming stake through the heart, drop him to the ground from that, and then behead him. I mean, like not just with one 
whack with a couple is pretty gruesome. It's pretty bloody for a uh, for by even by full moon standards, you know. It is, yeah, but, it is. These are these are shockingly very some of like that small niche of very intense, serious, like dark horror. <laughs> when there's the violence, the violence is very intense and painful feeling, and the gore is unrelenting. <laughs> oh yes, and. You know, let's face it, they don't just, you know, take them out with the, the stake through the heart. They do behead them at the same time. It, and But I even, like, you know, by regular vampire standards, you would think, yeah, that's going to be what takes them out. But is that really supposed to do? What I literally wrote down here was, oh, please, we know better. I'm like, part two, part three, part four, part five. We know there's more Radu, so we know this is not <laughs> the end of him. Yeah, uh, and it's. It's funny because in a lot of the later sequels, like especially by the end of part four, Ted Nicolau was so furious with the character that he had like creative hate towards him as a character. You know, if that makes sense. That yes. by the time he, he wrote the ending of part four, he's like, just fucking die. <laughs> like, just die. <laughs> Be done. You're finished. Uh, you're fucking. You're fucking over with. You know, and that's why the final shot of part four is just a burning head because he was like, he's dead. He's done. He's never coming back <laughs> until the prequel. Until the prequel, yeah. <laughs> but this is almost essentially the, in the final minutes of the movie, we get Stefan continues uh, what Radu started by biting Michelle and draining her blood and letting her. Fully transform while, you know, he puts her in a little coffin keepsake kind of box. And that's where it ends off. They both crawl into their coffins and we get a beautifully crafted ending shot of a close up of Radu's severed head. The subspecies devil minions gathered around and his eyes pop open. Yeah, I will say Uh, I love that shot of... Stefan laying Michelle into the coffin because of the way it's very not naturally but <laughs> unnaturally it's like the coffin is lit from the inside somehow so it's like he's laying it's her like down it's like yeah into this like powerfully lit uh, bed of light <laughs> like he's you know kind of thematically trying to like you know keep her in the light and safe from the darkness of the other side of his family and yeah, the darkness which is the Vladislaus, you know yeah and then that and then like you said that final shot <laughs> when when it walks past and then you see his eyes just open back up there's a lot of iconic iconic shots for the the full moon canon specifically in this film too Oh, of course. I mean, some of the shots of Radu, when the shots of him coming up out of the, the coffin, which was, you know, uh, and the shots of the, they reuse a lot of those shots of the, I mean, the the little subspecies minions and whatnot. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's all very, I mean, the shot of the bloodstone itself. I mean, there's a lot of the iconic things that we've come to know and love for from Full Moon, a lot of them came from subspecies. Totally. And it's funny because if you are a big fan of the the subspecies themselves, this is the movie to watch because they are so barely in any of the other movies. Yeah. Yeah, they don't do a <laughs> lot 
they, they pop up for a little bit at the beginning of part two. Briefly They're... at the beginning of two, and I believe at the end of three. And then I don't remember them being in part four at all. Yeah, I don't think the subspecies were in part four. I don't think there was even budget or capability for them, because I believe at that point, uh, Dave Allen was already, he was, uh, had already passed, so they didn't really have capability to do it. I've so. actually, I'm, I'm a poor judge of that one for part four, because as much as I love the series, I've only watched part four. I mean, I've watched part one dozens of times. I've watched part two and three multiple dozens of times. Mm-hmm. Part four, I've seen maybe three or four times. It's not a film that I love. I like it, but I don't love it. If that makes four, sense. Four is hands down. I, in the back of my mind with every franchise, I can probably, some of them quicker than others, but I can tell you, I think part part two is the superior installment followed by three, then one, then four. Four is dead last. Um, I just, it doesn't, it, it doesn't gel for me. I can accept it, you know, and appreciate it yeah. for what it is. Uh, I, I'm a firm believer, and I said this in a, some online thread earlier about transfer six. <laughs> I would, I will, I will always be much more forgiving of bad sequels than I can be of a bad remake. Cause to me, a bad sequel is just like a redheaded stepchild of the family. You know, you might not, you might not like it as much as some of the others, but you know, it's part of the bunch. You just gotta accept it and grin and bear it. You might not like that redheaded stepchild when they come to the family reunion. You know, you might not like seeing, you know, Halloween resurrection in your box <laughs> set, you know, but you're I don't like seeing it in mine. I can you're tell you that much, you know, yeah. but <laughs> you know, that's it's, just the it's way still to... part of the family, right? I, I mean, technically, I might not exactly. I might not like seeing Puppet Master the Legacy in my box set, but you know what? I'm stuck with it. So I, but I'd rather have that than a crappy remake. So, um, Any day of the week. Yeah, and there's there's strong aspects about part four, I think. You know, and Denise and Honest are both very good in it. I just, I don't know. It's just too different. And I liked a lot of the character dynamics that had been set up beforehand, and a lot of those are just gone. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of the, the like you put it, the character, character dynamics from two and three yeah. are gone within their own. First opening because couple of, of because of that part. yeah that that abrupt opening zinger it's just like mm, yeah this is what you that's that's what you wanted this is what you got and I, it's bothersome to me too that they have um there's an actor from vampire journals which exists within the continuity of the franchise there was an actor that was in that as a character whose character name escapes me but the actor's name he was a romanian actor named Mihai Denvale, and he ended up playing the mad doctor in Bloodstorm that was trying to cure her of the vampirism. So it always oh, bothered me of the, the the guy with the creepy eyes. You know? Yeah, <laughs> was, yeah, he does have some creepy eyes. Yeah, because he was he was the he was the homosexual vampire in Vampire Journals that killed his concubine and was begging for forgiveness to Ash. Oh, and that's the that's the same way. That's the same actor playing. Okay, I never put those two and two together. I... He was in a lot of Mihai was in a lot of those Romanian films. He's a noble in the background in Transfers Four and Five. He was also the police chief in Dark Angel. So, 
But I just hated the fact that I hate any time a, a same actor or actress reappears in a franchise as a completely different character, unless that's the actual joke. Like, right, right. Like, like Perry Shin being in every Hatchet movie as a different character. <laughs> I, you know, it's just an in joke, but it's just it's off it because, it, because it's the joke. But like, I don't, I that always bothered me about part four. But you know, what can you do? Yeah, can't have everything. No, you can't. Is this like you had related this series a little bit, kind of like uh, the Phantasm series? You know, where they kind of bring characters in and then drop them away right at the beginning of the next one, you know, and they do things like that. You know, just because you love a character doesn't mean they're going to make it to the sequel. (laughs) And doesn't mean that the same character popping up isn't going to pop up as somebody's brother or somebody's, you know, as you put it, like hatchet wise, you know, is this another actor playing different, you know? Yep. Well, I think we uh, can go ahead and give this bad boy our final thoughts and review. And you know the rules. Guests go first, Dustin. I, you know, I think the original subspecies is most definitely and uh, deserves to be looked at and talked about as one of uh, Full Moon's great classics. Um, I don't think that it's a perfect movie but i think that there are so many good things about it like you said it's got a great great cast it's got a great script it has fantastic locations the tone the music everything was very on point and it's a very fun movie that set a groundwork for what is really a very 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 powerful franchise uh, and I think it, it set the stage for what I consider one of the most perfect uh, full moon movies ever, because I think Subspecies 2 is as perfect as full moon can get. It's a magnificent movie. I think this was, it's a, it's a great film. I would, on a scale of 1 to 10, I would give it an 8. Nice. And I think we we both agree though that uh, on on that that subspecies two is the best one of the of the franchise at least thus far. Part five might might surprise us, but uh, part two is yeah yeah the, the best of the entire franchise. But this film is a solid start. It's a solid one getting out of the gate. It's got so many good things going for it. Just the utter ambience of everything that between the actors, the locations, the cinematography the music and a superior script. I mean, it's a very intelligent film. It's not, you know, it's not goofy, uh, which, you know, goofy has its time and its place, but when you don't want a goofy film, you, you, you want something serious. This is the type of movie to, to put in. It's got a great villain. It's got uh, a protagonist that you really care about and is, it's not just a dumb damsel in dis- distress, you know. It's a, a I love the Michelle character. I love his, how she evolves and what uh, the Denise does with her in later sequels. And you know, I love my man Radu. I love a good dynamic bad guy. I like a multi as you put him put it uh, a multi leveled or layered bad guy. You know, yeah. especially as as the sequels go on and on, Radu just gets better. And better and badder and badder. And yeah, the best the best bad guys are the ones that are they have that weird depth that you might not expect from characters like that. You know, he's a vampire, but he has he's 
he's been through stuff. He's experienced stuff. He's experienced, you know, I mean, just look, look at him as a character. He has especially come some of the later films. He has nothing. He has nothing left. His entire family is dead. He's just left with a castle and loneliness. Castle, you know? loneliness, and a bloodstone. That's really all he's, he's got left. Yeah, and and by the later sequels, yeah, after you know much of the other characters are dead, that's you know when he's that's one of one of I think the most heartfelt sequences in a full moon movie in general is is when he is telling Michelle and I think three he's like, I've sacrificed everything for you. He killed my mother. Like, there's nothing. I killed my brother. There's nothing left. Like, if you won't accept me. What do I have? Nothing. I have nothing for eternity. Right. And I mean, you know, and it's that's, that's heavy shit. Right. And this is coming from a guy who had lived for hundreds and hundreds of years and had seen some shit in his life up until the moment he met her. It's not yep. like he's, you know, a fresh face. You know, he's not, uh, you know, new at this game of life. Not at all. Yeah. He's like I said, he's he's been around for centuries so for i want to i want to say that he's born somewhere around the turn of the century so i mean he's yeah, that's what i thought he's like because i feel like he he was born somewhere around year zero i want to say i could be wrong uh but he's been around for hundreds of years so like he's got a lot of, you know, that's why Dracula himself is an interesting character too, because he's just lived lifetimes and just seen, seen and existed through everything. Yep, yeah, imagine so. the stories that he could tell that he's probably done already forgotten. You know, he's for, okay. probably forgotten about forgotten about more than people like us can learn in our lifetimes. Absolutely. That's the the main reason why I love this movie. I, I love a good bad guy, and I do love a good, and, and I will emphasize this, a good vampire movie. And this is is better than that. It's not a good vampire movie. It's a great vampire movie. It's For me, I will agree with you that it's not perfect, but it's, yeah. it's, near, it's near perfect for me. I'm coming in pretty high. Uh, I'm going to come in with a nine and a half. Uh, nice. it's, it's probably one of my top five favorites. Uh, I think you will probably know how high I come in on part two if I'm calling part two uh, the best one of the series. So whenever we review part two, you already know where my rating stands. That's going to be like an 11. But uh, <laughs> but still, you know, uh, I am a sequel guy, though. That's the, the one thing. Um, my wife will even tell that to just about anybody. My husband loves sequels. I'm the type of guy that always loves a part two more than I do a, a part one. I'm the same way with, you know, Friday the 13th sequels. I like my favorite one is not the first one. My favorite one is actually part six, you know, but yeah. Halloween, Halloween, it's, it's part two, you know, this, the main reason why I don't like hospitals. I'm uh, probably the same way. Usually my favorite installment of any franchise is usually never the first one. I think the only one I would say it's actually the first one that I can think of just off the top of my head is scream uh even though i i think there's a a difference in what i would say i think is my favorite one and what i would tell you is the best film of a franchise as well because whereas the original halloween is hands down obviously the oh, best yeah. 
in the entire franchise. Yeah, I should have clarified that. I'm, I'm not saying, you know, but by saying that they're my favorite ones, that they're oh. the best ones, because I can be honest with myself and, and actually say Halloween 1 is much better than Halloween 2, but it doesn't oh. mean it's my favorite. Yeah, 1 is one is a, it's a perfect thriller. That's why we hold it in such high regard as it is. But I mean, I personally, if I, if I could choose, I would rather watch 5 or 8 any day. No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> That's I it. You're banned from the show. Banned from the show. <laughs> I would. I would. Ra- I would actually sit down and watch four or seven uh, before I watched any of the others. See if I if maybe, I watched any, maybe even I, six. Yeah, I was just. You took the words right out of my mouth. If I had a choice, I I love two. If I, if you're talking sequels, which ones I love? I love two's two. Great. Yeah, two's great. I, I love four, and I have a soft spot for the. I, I like the producer's cut. Of part six. I was going to say part six post post uh, like a side note. I hate the producer's cut, but that's a that's a whole conversation for another show. But I I think that they're they're fun movies. Though there are some movies, some sequels, I would just rather watch over the originals. And you know, like I my favorite Puppet Masters part three. My favorite subspecies is two. My favorite Trancers is three. Like, you know, it's, yes. it's always sequels. Honestly, I'd watch Dollman versus Demonic Toys before I watched Dollman or Demonic Toys. <laughs> so you know, that, that's one where I'll differ because Dollman is probably number three in my top favorite. Uh, number three or number four, I'd have to think about it. My top favorite full moon movies. Wow. Really? Uh, I really, yeah, I really, I, I have a soft spot for Albert Pune and, and Tim Thomerson when they put their heads together. There's just Pune, something. Pune can bring the magic and Thomerson as always. Thomerson could never give a bad performance. Dollman is just one of those movies that I wouldn't say it was one of my tops of the, the Paramount era, but it's definitely not a bad movie. It would be uh, one well, I would go to. Not as quick as some of the others, though. <laughs> but yeah, I, w- I was always disappointed that we didn't truly get a, like a, a Doll Man two. I mean, I know that's essentially what yeah. Demonic Toys, you know, uh, Doll Man was, but you know, it always felt there, like it, it, it needed its its full, fully realized kind of sequel. There were uh, for any of these kinds of things, you know, I've, I've probably said this before. Any movie, as far as Charles Band is concerned, is basically considered like a pilot episode. For TV, you know, yep. if if it gets enough viewership and people like it enough, they'll keep making them. And every movie, probably, you know, I, I say it as far as horror is concerned. Like, I think any good horror movie should already have potential sequels. Any concept I even come up with as a writer or producer, I already have the mindset of a long term uh, franchise possibility in my mind, because any great horror story is worth retelling <laughs> right? <laughs> in, in, in a different way, you know? So, right. uh, I the mean, the Thundering Adventures of, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, you know, it's, thankfully, Subspecies was a hit. I know the one of the original concepts for Subspecies, too, was they were gonna uh, follow Michelle back to America, I believe. Aren't they gonna and go to, like, New Orleans or something like that? It, it, be in I believe New York's Chinatown district 
or something like that, or LA's Chinatown district. Um, and they had some artwork. You, if you look around, you can even find some of the artwork. The image of the original concept art actually ended up being the picture on the spine, I believe, of part two, where it is a shot of the subspecies carrying Radu's head on like a tray. And there's like a cityscape in the background. Have you ever seen that image? No, I have not. That was actually original the original concept art for part two, but it ended up not, not being used. Yeah, I mean, that would have been uh, interesting to take him to America and whatnot, but I'm kind of glad they didn't. I, lo- I like that they stayed in Romania. Yeah, I think it, yeah, it, it made sense for the story to just immediately continue right where it was. So anything else I think would have been stretching it. Cause that's one of the neat things about all these movies. Same as phantasm actually. And, Another franchise that I've already mentioned too, like Hatchet, the sequels tend to just pick up immediately at the end of the last one because you're just right. carrying on with the same the same story, you know. So, and it works, and it works, and yeah. at least works so far. Um, I'm still waiting with bated breath for them to finally get rolling on uh, Subspecies Five, but the fact that it's actually, you know got past the planning stages and it's, you know, in pre-production is, 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 it's a little bit reassuring. I mean, with COVID and everything, yep. yeah, everything's been put, you know, put we, on hold. We finally get there after over 20 years of waiting and then a, there's a worldwide pandemic. <laughs> right. You know, people come on, get your shit together. Let's get this shit under control. We got a subspecies five to make here. Right. Yeah. Wear your you mask know. so we can get more full moon criminy. Right. <laughs> speaking There's of more six, full moon speaking of more, more deadly ten movies to make <laughs> <laughs> wait there's six more yeah six more oh. deadly tens they only got four of them in the can the only oh, one left, the only one that's left to be released is Femalian Cosmic Crush that one's actually finished though right it is, it is, is it? shot and it's uh, I believe in final stages of post maybe so uh, they'll have to do it in between their ti- Tiger King movie and Corona Zombies. Yeah, you know, I I know they were they're already shooting um, the third Corona exploitation film because their uh, band has already posted pictures from the shoot, I believe, on his Twitter or Barbie and Kendra in Space Force. Oh, jeez! <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, the furthering adventures of Barbie and Kendra. You know, I'll tune in. I'll tune in for them. They're important characters. America needs to follow, <laughs> I guess. So, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Are you trying to convince others or yourself of that? Both. <laughs> <laughs> hey, maybe it's, it's it's that kind of the matter. Not the heroes we wanted, but the heroes we need. Exactly. They're they're not. They might not be what we what we wanted but they're what we got so they might exactly. not be what we deserved, but they were what we were handed so but that's okay that's, very, that's, okay. that's okay they're still making movies during quarantine and still following safe filming parameters so i'm okay with them making barbie and kendra movies hey and as long as they you know can keep finding ways to make more movies you know while under quarantine hey more power to them I, i'm all about it totally. just do it just do it safely. Yep. 
but we got more full moon in store for you. Actually, uh, keep uh, listening to the end of this. Sh- at the end of this show, we will segue into a special segment. We have. Uh, I, I know you already know this, Dustin, but for the listeners, this is going to be a bit of a surprise. I managed to score a very cool once in a lifetime special one-on-one interview with director of subspecies Ted Nicolau. Now we yeah. we talked for oh, almost uh, an hour and you will be able to hear the uncut interview following the end of our show. So stay tuned for that for our part 2 of a subspecies retrospective. But uh Dustin, I want to uh, thank you for joining us or joining me once again for another, you know, episode of Howling at the Full Moon and doing what we do best and just waxing philosophical and being nostalgic about full moon movies. Definitely. I'm always, always game to look back at some full moon classics and uh, discuss their their importance and merits. Exactly. And we'll have you back again. I'm not sure when we're, our schedules will coincide with each other, but... Uh, We'll have to, I think um, one we almost did about a week or so ago was Hell Asylum. So that might be the next one on the chopping block. That one would be an interesting one. <laughs> All <laughs> right. Well, folks, thank, once again, thank you for joining us and stay tuned for the Ted Nicolau interview. All righty, folks. Welcome to another episode of Cinema Degeneration. This is Howling at the Full Moon. We have something special for you this evening. We have an interview with director, writer, producer, filmmaker, Ted Nicolau. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thanks very much, Cameron. Uh, We've already uh, discussed a few of your films on the show. Our our pilot episode was on Bad Channels, one of my favorites here. uh, (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) It's a fun, fun film, uh, and I watched it very retro. I watched it on Laserdisc, <laughs> of all things, so it was. I, I feel like that's the way it was meant to be seen. <laughs> yeah, probably so, yeah. I'd, I'd sort of be curious to see it in widescreen format, but um, I guess that's not going to happen for now. Well, hopefully sometime soon. I would love to see a widescreen format of it. But, um, gosh, there's so many questions I want to ask, ask you, but I'm going to start off... Uh, with the beginning of your career, uh, I know you had your start was on a Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a location sound recording, uh, doing sound editing and sound tech work on, on Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Tourist Trap, uh, The Day That Time Ended. And I know that eventually transitioned into a lot of editing, writing and directing. But can you tell us a little bit about the you know, beginnings of your career there? Yeah, uh, basically, I went to film school at the University of Texas in Austin. And uh, a good friend of mine in film school throughout those years was Daniel Pearl, who was the cinematographer of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And uh, we basically, uh, when Toby Hooper was uh, crewing up Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, there was one main sound recordist in Austin. His name was Courtney Gooden. And he was a technical genius. And I had worked for him on a couple of movies and commercials as his boom operator. And uh, when Toby was crewing up Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Courtney was busy on another film. And so Daniel recommended me for the sound recording position. So 
I got that job. That was like, what, 1972 or something like that. Uh, we were just graduated from film school and uh, starting graduate school there. Uh, after Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we had a film production company with a few people that uh, did commercials and public service announcements and training films, uh, thinking that we were going to kind of duplicate the success and the money-raising capabilities of Chainsaw Massacre. But by that time, these tax incentives for oil millionaires had sort of run out. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of my friends started moving to Los Angeles. And so I joined that exodus, came to Los Angeles, got a job uh, that Courtney Goodman, the sound recordist, was working on uh, called Roar. That was uh, kind of an infamous Tippi Hedren movie that um, you might have heard of. Um, yes. And uh, came on as, a, as an editor on that film and worked on it for a number of months until the kind of giant floods came and wiped out the cutting rooms and the sets and everything got shut down for a while. Worked with Courtney to kind of take apart all of the chem editing machines and, and uh, you know, clean the mud out of them and rebuild them. And uh, about that time, uh, my friend David Schmoller and Courtney Gooden, I mean, uh, David Schmoller and Larry Carroll uh, had gotten a deal with Charles Band to produce Tourist Trap. So they hired me away from Roar, uh, and I edited Tourist Trap, and uh, basically uh, worked on that film, and then did the sound effects for the film. And Charlie Band uh, liked the work that I did, and hired me to do edit uh, a recut of, of The Daytime Ended, and uh, that worked out okay. And then I kind of went off and did some other things, got fired from a few projects, uh, and then. Uh, eventually, uh, Charlie Band hired me back to start editing the movies that he directed. So I did that for a number of years until uh, I got the opportunity to direct on on uh, Dungeon Master. That actually leads in, into my very next question I have written down here was your directorial debut, Dungeon Master. I was going to say, how did that transition come about of working from editing to directing? Well, in film school, I had uh, studied to be a director and had directed a number of short films and got a, an Academy Student Academy Award nomination for one of them, kind of an apocalyptic comedy called um, Southern Hospitality. And so I, I edited because for me, I love editing, too. It's sort of the next best thing to directing in, in terms of being able to, you know, influence the the soul of a movie. And so I was editing for Charlie and he was expanding his company and was trying to test out uh, assorted directors to see who he might hire for future films as, as the company began to produce more films every year. And um, so I was editing Ghoulies at the time, I believe. And the next film in line was a film called Dungeon Master. So I started editing the the wraparound sequences that Charlie directed. And then he brought in some other directors, I think uh, like Peter Manoogian and uh, mm. uh, David uh, Allen, who was kind of the great stop motion uh, animator. Maybe it wasn't Peter Manoogian. I can't remember if he did one or not, but uh, John Beekler, the, the makeup effects artist. Yes. And uh, so I was editing all of these little short sequences that each of these directors had uh, done and 
thinking, geez, I could do better than this. And uh, ultimately, when the film was kind of all assembled, it was a little too short in running time. And so I proposed to Charlie that I would direct one another episode. And he agreed, and that's how I started directing the sequence from Dungeon Master. That's interesting. I, I, I love how careers flow because with even with my own fledgling uh, career, you know, starting out writing and then moving to directing, it always interests me, you know, what how the circumstances come to be, to, you know, to kind of change gears all of a sudden. And I agree, um, although I find editing to be somewhat uh, tedious at times, I, I love the assembly of it, of, of just putting the puzzle pieces together. Yeah, and, and you're, in editing, you're basically kind of affecting the rhythm of the movie. You're, you're influencing the performances. You're helping to tell the story and helping to weed out what's non-essential. It's, it's an incredible craft, I think. It's a second to directing for me. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the kind of the key to my career was basically I never gave up. I suffered some incredible disappointments and some humiliating kind of moments. But, you know, I kind of kept focused on what I wanted to do and what I love to do. And, you know, it worked out pretty well. Didn't quite work out as well as it could have. But, but you know, I've had a pretty interesting life overall. Now, you have worked on multiple Charlie Band productions, doing editing work on uh, Transfers 1 and 2, Ghoulies, as, as you've mentioned, uh, Robot Jocks, uh, Crash and Burn, which we just reviewed last week, oh, cool. um, a couple of making of seg uh, segments on uh, movies like uh, Hugo and the remake of The Alamo. What is it about ed editing that draws you to it? Or, or uh, should I say, what, you know, what, how has it... I guess, how has it changed from starting with, you know, physically cutting film in the 70s to the digital era that we have today? What's like, is it changed for the better? Or is it changed for the worse? Uh, you know what? I think it's changed for the better in terms of uh, the editor's ability to to quickly make changes or go back to an earlier version of the film. Back in the days of cutting 35 millimeter you, you know, I'm a very kind of precision editor and uh, some people have labeled me a frame fucker where I will, you know, to me, one frame can make a difference in a cut. And uh, so I would trim and trim and trim and suddenly you've got like a bunch of one frame trims uh, hanging in your bin or put in, <coughs> put away in envelopes. And if you change your mind and want to redo it, you have to be able to access all of the trims that you've made and reassemble them. So your finished uh, work print ends up sometimes, you know, really being full of splices. So in a way, the digital has kind of done away with all of that, um, all of that mess and given you a, a much better screen to edit with uh, and uh, more tracks to, uh, to, you know, add to the sound. Um, the the one disadvantage is basically when you were cutting in 35 millimeter the editing room was a really lively place with one or two assistants maybe one or two editors the director uh and so it was kind of a social collaboration whereas now editing is a much more solitary pursuit and you know the editors on bigger budget films will have an assistant or two 
but for the most part, you're working by yourself or with the director. So it's changed for the better, technically, for sure. Nice. Now, you ha- you are part of the Charlie Band uh, slash Empire Pictures Full Moon family slash legacy. I mean, starting with uh, Dungeon Master and films like Terror Vision, um, the Subspecies series, Va- Vampire Journals, Bad Channels, Puppet Master versus uh, Demonic Toys. You know, you've worked on so many films for Charlie. I, I'm in- interested how working for him has changed over the years and what keeps you coming back uh you know in the beginning oh after terrorvision terrorvision was uh you know an incredible opportunity for me and um and charlie the the charming thing about charlie is that he loves making movies and he's uh, uh kind of a kind of a con man in some ways and has kind of built up incredible companies and then kind of collapsed them due to financial problems. Uh, but still, overall, he loves making movies and he's a very positive kind of influence on the people that are working with him. The downside is you basically have to work with a very limited budget, very limited schedule. Um, for me, after Terrorvision, there was a period of a couple of years where Uh, We were trying to develop projects and none of them really caught on and and became films. Um, But after Terrorvision then came subspecies and uh, things were kind of off and running for me again. And I I felt like because I was one of Charlie's favorite directors, you know, there was Stuart Gordon and um, a couple of others, uh, I got a lot of great opportunities to go do movies in in other countries and uh, you know on the one hand i was sort of the guinea pig for a lot of those productions in foreign countries but (laughs) for me it was like every one of them was an adventure and a great opportunity to get to know the artists and craftspeople and how and the working conditions in in some very interesting places so i stuck with them kind of because uh, I kept getting the the best projects, you know, Dragon World uh, was for me like uh, an incredible opportunity to work in the UK, also to tell a, a, a beautiful story, you know, for children. So, so uh, what's changed over the years is basically in the days of Terrorvision, there were bigger budgets and you could hire cast that, that, you know, had some name recognition um, and the schedules were longer. The post-production periods were not really limited by money, um, and so it was a it was an incredible time to be working for him and an incredible uh, film factory and a great kind of setting, you know, just to interact with other artists. Uh, and, and as time went on uh, through Full Moon, there was still the budgets were still adequate, although they were tighter and the schedules were shorter. And uh, that was one of the reasons I loved going to work in Romania because it was so much l- cheaper to shoot there that that the schedules could be a little longer than if you were shooting in the States. Um, and over the years, uh, as he struggled more, the budgets got even tighter. And until now, the budgets are like almost impossible, as I can't imagine. And I'm not really that interested in making movies, you know, that 
so cheap that you can't kind of express some kind of cinematic value to the film. Um, the one exception being Subspecies uh, 5, the, the prequel to the Subspecies series, which we've had planned for years and years and years, and uh, Charlie's never had the budget for, but um, we're planning to do that now um, as soon as the COVID-19 situation eases up, or if it ever does, in uh, in Serbia is kind of our target place right now because that's also another really inexpensive place to shoot. Now, you have directed across a multitude of genres. I mean, with more of the hor- horrific fare, more versus the kind of PG family fare, like Leap in Leprechauns, Remote, uh, Dragon World, as you've mentioned, uh, Sh- Shrunken City, which is one of my favorites. Oh, cool. And, and uh, a lot of... Uh, documentary sorry excuse me a little documentary work do you have a preferred genre to work in do you like the like the science fiction fantasy horror more than uh documentary work do do you have a certain passion pro you know passion project genre i guess is what i'm asking you know uh i kind of fell into documentary work when there was no feature work to be had back in the like early 2000s and uh, a friend of mine named Barbara Tonys had a company that was doing a lot of work for Disney. And so she kind of gave me the opportunity to go work on their Avids. And I kind of taught myself how to cut digitally because up until that point, I had had editors working for me who, who did all the work. Uh, so I kind of used their Avids to learn the process and then kind of fell into uh, producing some of these documentaries and really enjoyed the, the, the work because you're basically starting with no script and kind of creating a script from the interviews and shooting uh, or taking photographs and trying to, trying to build a film out of bits and pieces that, you, that are kind of like mysterious when you begin. So I like doing documentaries. Uh, I grew up with horror films and science fiction films and went, you know, on Saturday afternoons with my father to, to the matinees and saw everything in the fifties. Um, and, and so I have this kind of nostalgic love for horror films and science fiction films. I'm not a big fan of, um, of slasher films or films that are, uh, that deal with like people's cruelty to people, but, monstrous cruelty to people i can i can take that all day long so and when charlie had uh, kids with uh, his current or with his wife then debbie dion debbie i think had the idea to start making children's movies too and you know with charlie's love of fantasy films it became kind of a natural to do children's fantasy films and i found that i really loved that because whereas a horror film can kind of put you in a really dark place for the period of time you're working on it, and sometimes the actors go to really dark places and it becomes very difficult, um, with a children's film, everything seems lighter. You're having a beautiful time. You're kind of expressing a beautiful story. And uh, I really loved uh, Dragon World and the, the Leprechaun movies, all of those you know, working with English cast, there it was a great experience, um, and and comedy, which I also love. So, in a way, I guess my f- if I was going to 
do a movie in the near future. Right now, it's probably a horror film because I'm I sort of my name is more associated with horror. But if I could do what I really would love to do, I would be making uh, comedies and fantasy films. Interesting. Well, you just answered my ne my next uh, question about uh, a dream project that you'd want to work on. What would it be? But a comedy that that got me unexpectedly there. I, I didn't uh, expect that. Nice. I set out to make comedies, and my all my student films were comedies, and and I, I fancy myself as kind of funny and uh, with a unique kind of point of view on things. But uh, you know, I fell into horror, and I and I loved I loved horror, and and you know, the subspecies films for me were, you know, it's like you can create an atmosphere that kind of that you can't do in comedy. You know, comedies have to be a little bit more straightforward. Whereas uh, vampire movies, horror films, you can really uh, create a world that's uh, apart from our world. So, so I love horror films. But it, when I sit here at home alone and I'm writing, uh, the last few scripts I've written have been comedies. Nice. I would love to read one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Now, speaking of uh, your your fondness for comedies and your, your uh, affinity for horror films, this is more of a fan type question. Do you have a certain people? Certain people have what they call comfort food movies. Do you have like a comfort food movie that is like a usual like a go to that you watch that you, it's kind of like an old friend, so to speak? Uh, you know, I there are certain movies that I that I have a great fondness for and I could watch a bazillion times. And uh, some of them happen to be uh, Martin Scorsese films like uh, like um, Casino or Goodfellas. Those are movies I could watch endless amounts of times. Uh, I For horror films, probably less so because once a horror film, once you've seen it once or two or three times, it's sort of played out its mysteries in a way um i suppose if I, I if i wanted to pick a horror film that i could watch a number of times it, it might be uh don't look back the nicholas rogue film uh yeah. because that film is such a artistic triumph you know um for but you know i was like a kind of a film snob you know from film school on you know and so for me <laughs> The movies that I really loved were Fellini films and and uh, Ingmar Bergman films, and so I was, you know, that that was where my sights were set when I when I began everything. You know, the right. the thing that kind of turned me from being like a pre med student to being a film student was basically uh, uh, taking acid with a friend and going to see. Uh, Juliet of the Spirits, and another night going to see The Seventh Seal. And those two films really just took me off into a different direction in life. Uh, you're a man after my own heart when you brought up Scorsese. Uh, I think he's absolutely amazing. So that, I must ask a bonus question is, what did you think of The Irishman? You know, I I came to The Irishman really excited to see it, and uh, it it was such a kind of elegiac film and lacking in all of the normal kind of cinema pyrotechnics that you associate with, with Scorsese. Uh, yeah, agreed. That I was a little bit disappointed in it. 
but you know what? As with a lot of his films, even like Casino, the first time I saw it, I was like, yeah, I don't know. But but now you, anytime I'm like channel surfing and come across it, I could sit down and watch it to the end again. So it might be that way with The Irishman, except for the fact that it's so damn long that it's going to be a while before I can sit, have the time to sit down and watch it again. Um, I, I was really kind of mystified at, at the kind of static quality of that film. But I, I kind of, I don't want to judge it too harshly because he's surprised me in the past too. Yeah, I found, I found it a, an amazing film, but to be a bit long, it's the kind of movie you have to, uh, watch in, in pieces, you know, because how many people have four hours they can just devote to watching one film? Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe so. Maybe if I watched it in in a little episodes, you know, it could be. Ah, some other films that I really loved uh, were uh, the films of uh, oh shit, like Nineteen Hundred and uh, The Conformist, uh, Bernardo Bertolucci. Uh, those films or films that I could watch a million times too. Yeah. My, uh, comfort food film or f- series of films is, uh, is phantasm. And, oh, uh, really? Oh, I, yeah. Yeah. I can, uh, phantasm is a film that I can watch anytime, anywhere. If it's on, I will, if it, I just happen to cross it, or any of the films, I will, <laughs> I will pretty much stop everything I'm doing and just sit down and watch it. Oh, interesting. But, uh, Okay. But I got to meet uh, Angus Scrim and Reggie Bannister. I actually got to work with Reggie Bannister on uh, a, a film before the first film I ever worked on. It came from Trafalgar. And uh, I was uh, Reggie's assistant for a couple of days. So that was very neat. Oh, cool. But um, speaking of Angus Scrim, we have to get to the, the, the question I think everybody is going to want me to ask is just talking a little bit about subspecies. It's an amazing series of films. Uh, I'm very stoked that with part of the deadly 10 is that we're finally going to see a subspecies five. Uh, I, I just absolutely love the subspecies films and the, the legacy that it has, you know, with the full moon fans and kind of just fans overall. I, I know people who are say not per se full moon fans, but still love the subspecies films. What do you think about what what is it about the the subspecies films that has such an allure to them? You know, uh, when we were making the very first subspecies film, it was like 1990 in Romania, and it was a very sad and hard time there. Uh, there was we were staying at hotels up in ski resort towns that were totally empty except for us. It was impossible to or very difficult to make a phone call home. Uh, the crews were drunk and and constantly rebelling because they weren't getting paid. The film stock was delayed and not getting to us, so we were having to be very cautious about shooting the film. The actors were very unhappy and uh, getting drunk on the set. It was a nightmare for me trying to hold it all together the the makeup effects artist you know kind of went this movie's kitsch and uh and so i was fighting against all of that going god damn it we're gonna finish this movie come hell or high water and (laughs) uh 
we managed to finish it and it felt like a great triumph just to be able to go home at the end of it. The schedule kind of stretched on and on and on and winter was coming and it was colder than hell. Um, We got home, edited the film. Uh, My wife suggested uh, for the music, uh, this band that she had heard on the radio called the Amman Folk Ensemble. And we contacted them and they came on to do the score And uh, somehow the combination of uh, Honest Hove's performance as Radu, the music, the incredible locations, because that's what what really was spectacular about working in Romania was we were able to shoot in these places that that nobody had ever seen in the West before, you know, and they were so... Uh, full of atmosphere. Um, and somehow the combination of all those elements and the the story and the new kind of mythology of the bloodstone, all of that came together. I mean, in a way, the film, you could criticize all of those films for being kind of slow paced. But in my mind, it was you know, vampires really don't have to rush and, and, you know, because the, the, the scripts of full moon of that era were a lot of talk and not as much action because you couldn't really achieve a lot of action on the schedules. So in a way you could criticize those films for being slow, but I've found sometimes that films that are slow somehow have a deeper kind of hypnotic effect on you and get into your imagination more. Uh, an example of that would be like uh, Robert Altman's film Quintet, which I don't think got seen very much. And it was so damn slow. But the images kind of because they are they endure on the screen so long, they really kind of burn into your memory in a way that um, faster paced films don't. So I guess all of that is is to say that the that the atmosphere of subspecies is unique in in kind of like actually being shot in the real places. And I think Anas's performance was, you know, like incredible, really deep and emotional and terrifying. And uh, then when Denise Duff kind of came into the subspecies series in number two, um, she kind of brought a, a, a female presence that, that was kind of equal to, to Anas. Uh, and so the films, and uh, I cannot uh, forget, you know, that that the cinematography of of Vlad Paunescu was, you know, had a very Eastern European quality to it. And we were working with very limited resources in terms of how you move the camera, how you uh, light things. And and I, I was aware of that from the beginning and knew that the film was going to have a kind of European kind of chamber movie feel. And so that contributes to the to the feeling that you're in some other world. And then uh, the costumes that Juana Paunescu did, uh, she's brilliant, you know, and whatever I asked for, she was able to do it and then kind of do it even more. And part of that was because the in Romania they had uh costume warehouses full of historic pieces and she's an incredible designer and and um so so all of that kind of created this baroque uh look for the film too that i think also 
gives it um, kind of a, you can watch it multiple times and still kind of come away from it seeing something new. I would agree with everything you just said. Um, for all the right reasons, it just, you know, it might be a slower paced series of films, but it leaves you hanging on the edge, like every moment, like just the cinematography was what always drew it, to, drew me to it. I always thought they were beautifully shot films. And, yeah. <clears throat> and, and, uh, you know, when we were shooting the first film after the first week of shooting, uh, Charlie called and said, uh, you know what? I think we're going to have to replace Vlad with, uh, Adolfo Bartoli. Adolfo was an Italian cinematographer who had started working for Full Moon. And Adolfo's great. He's brilliant. And and he's the man who shot my film uh, Vampire Journals. And uh, in fact, some the, the Leap and Leprechaun movies. And I love him. But Vlad uh, had sort of taken me in in Romania. And, and through the weeks or months of pre-production, uh, it was sort of Vlad and Juana who kind of uh, let me come to their house and drink wine and and uh, talk about all the problems of production and they and and I loved them for that. They were my they were my friends and I could not see firing Vlad and bringing Adolfo on. And uh, Adolfo came uh, to Romania with uh, Albert Band, Charlie's father, and. Uh, was gonna they were gonna have a talk with Vlad basically and Adolfo looked at me and went please Ted I don't want to come here for this <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go to uh to Bufta which was the Romanian uh studio the national studio uh and have a big meeting with a bunch of Romanians to defend Vlad against being fired and went and did that and and got got Vlad kind of kept on the film and I'm so glad I did. And I think in the end, Charlie was glad he did too, because, uh, with a little bit of advice from, from Adolfo, which was basically, uh, more backlight and, uh, don't use fog filters. And, uh, so you'll see if you watch the movie, the first week of shooting, part of it was the, the train station at the beginning of the film and it has a more kind of bleak look than uh, than the later scenes and so vlad kind of learned very rapidly from adolfo what to do and adapted himself and um uh, it was incredible was that the question i don't know i just went off on something who knows <laughs> i don't know i've done forgot myself <laughs> it's all right though I've enjoyed picking your brain thus far. It's, uh, I, I will pick your brain even further if you'll allow me. Sure. Uh, I, I have another subspecies question, and this is something that's always uh, this perplexed me uh, when a studio has done this, because it's only happened a handful of times that I know, but subspecies two and three were filmed back-to-back. And being, a, like I said, a, a, an independent filmmaker myself, I, I know a lot. I don't know all of them. I know a lot of the, the trappings that come along with making a film. There's, you put it in, in your Deadly Ten video, there's the joys, the challenges, and the horrors of, of movie making. And if you've made more than one film, you know all about the horrors of, of movie making. Okay. I can't imagine trying to film two features back to back and i just have to know what was it like trying to tackle 
two films at the same time like that? Uh, you know, the I wrote the script for Subspecies 2 and 3 kind of as like one long, like it was a 180-page screenplay. And oh because of the, the, the way the Subspecies films work as kind of like a direct picks up directly from the ending of the previous film. Uh, it was, it was a, a pretty good way to approach it. But once you have a 180 page script and then have to break it down into uh, the locations and what location is going to be attached to both films and how the actors are going to have to, uh, what, what, uh, where they are in the story and in their development, uh, it became a very complex and and um, challenging kind of uh, uh, process, but with a good assistant director kind of breaking it down and a long pre-production where we traveled to all the locations and kind of boiled it down to, okay, this this particular room of this castle is going to represent this area. and And it was... You know, once you have all of that in your head, then it's just a matter of every day. You just look at the day ahead and don't think about the, you know, 50 days beyond that. You know, um, each day is its own kind of separate challenge. And, and all you have to do is get through that day. And then the thing I did back then was, you know, you just would go, okay, that's day two. So I'm one twenty fifth of the way through. And then by day four, you're like one twelfth of the way through. Uh, so it, it, it really is just a matter of focusing in on, on what you have to concentrate upon for that day. I'd say that's a good way to tackle it. Uh, otherwise you might go a little bit insane, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That movie could have, could have driven you insane. You know, luckily, by subspecies two, I'd come to an agreement with Honest that uh, no drinking during the shooting day, uh, and I will come and have a we'll split a, a bottle of wine at the end of the day when they're taking off the makeup, and that worked out very well for him. Uh, and uh, Denise is not a drinker, so she and and she's like a completely gung ho actress, ready to, for anything, and so she was a great uh, asset on the film and. Uh, Kevin Spiritas was was another really positive influence on the film. So, and, and uh, I have to give a shout out to to Wayne Toth and Norman Cabrera, who who were the makeup effects artists on those films. Uh, they they too were like incredible, and and they had a band at the time, and so they they ended up being the band in the disco or in the nightclub that uh, that Denise goes into to pick off that uh, rocker boy. Now, I, this is going to segue into, a, a, I apologize, but another subspecies question. Huh? <laughs> uh, subspecies 5. It's been so long in the making uh, and plotting and planning. What was it that finally made the, the timing right? And what is it like kind of revisiting these characters or old friends, if you will, after so long? You know, Subspecies 5, uh, I wrote the script back, oh man, probably to like the late 1990s or so, when Full Moon was still in operation. And uh, 
but with the when full moon kind of fell apart basically the script got shelved and we've sat on it all these years and Charlie, you know, has wanted to make it because I think, you know, the fans of the film have kind of like bugged him about it. And, uh, but we, you know, me and honest and Denise have kind of like resisted making it in any way that kind of like takes it too cheap and away from the original script that was written. Cause we all were pretty much into the original script. Now, as Charlie's company has begun to find its footing again, kind of the streaming world, and he's got enough kind of subscribers to his uh, to his full moon channel that that there is like money coming in, and he's got a film library that that he's that is actually kind of starting to pay off. Uh, he with the Deadly Ten, he kind of let it be known that he would do the subspecies five and it would be a little higher budget than the other films of the deadly 10 in order that, that we could do it, you know, as close as possible to the original script. I went back into the original script and, and, you know, trimmed out some superfluous uh, elements so that, you know, I could be assured that I could make it in like a three week schedule. So in a way it's, you know, time is running short, you know, that uh, we, we're getting older and we, we want to make the film because we all would like to work together again and we feel like it's a, it's a interesting story to tell and it will kind of reveal a lot about what, you know, why Radu is like he is and what, why he's obsessed with Denise. And so, so in a way, it, it's a film that, we, that we're dying to make. And um, so hopefully... Uh, we're going to get to do it. Uh, we were going to do it this past May, uh, but that got scrapped, and then we were going to try to do it in the fall, but I have a feeling the fall is not going to be all that safe yet, but probably by the spring uh, we'll probably be able to go do it. We're all eager to do it. Uh, I hope so. I hope it happens soon, and I, I know COVID is kind of canceled, canceled just about every everything uh for me as a filmmaker i had a, a film that we started shooting that i was directing in uh, february we got one weekend of shooting down and then we were preparing for march and june to shoot and well COVID happened and, and you know the, the rest is kind of history you know everything got shut down so we're all waiting for fall but i think spring is going to be a much safer time to do it yeah, I mean, is it a big crew, or can you shoot it in a very kind of limited way? Uh, it's, it's it's not a very big crew. It, it has a decent sized cast. It's a it's a crazy little film called Death Care, where it's, it's about crazy doctors and nurses and victims. I kind of wrote it uh, about my experiences with home health care and dealing with. Um, I had open heart surgery in the last uh, oh. couple of years. I had. Uh, oh. Yeah. And, you know, so I kind of wrote it as a cathartic way to, to, to deal with uh, going in and out of the hospital and, and, you know, dealing with home health care and crazy nurses and all that kind of thing. So it's once, once again, like, like you said, with the subspecies five, you know, you have a certain vision and you, you, you want the budget to, to be right, but the timing also has to be right. And everybody's rip roaring and ready to go. I got my crew on standby ready, but we just, you know, it's kind of uh, 
get being able to get everybody out there on a safe level, you know, where we can all properly so social distance and keep everything nice and clean and sanitized. But it just seems like right now things are kind of at that halfway point or is it going to get worse or is it going to get better? I'd rather wait to know that it's going to get better. So yeah. you don't want to kill any of your cast or crew for sure. No, 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 that I do not. Um, that being said about subspecies five, um, I know that the plot is very, very hush hush right now, but is there anything that you can tell us ab about uh, the furthering adventures of Radu? Uh, yeah, basically it starts probably like 700 years in the past uh, when Radu was a uh, human and uh, kind of show, I mean, he was born, he was a semi-human basically. He's born to uh, a demon mother and a vampire father, uh, but he hasn't become a vampire yet. And so we see uh, him confronting his father father uh and uh he works for the church uh, in the beginning and is a like a crusader with some magical powers to and so the church uses those kind of characters the demigod kind of characters to to fight evil and uh fate brings him back one day to the castle of his father and uh all everything goes falls apart for him from there so we see him uh, periodically from 800 years in the past up until the 19th century uh, and follow, follow his obsession. Nice, nice. I'm waiting with bated breath, sir. Cool. Now, I, I know we're pretty much at the end of our, our time here. We've been recording for almost an hour. I have one last... One. Yeah, yeah. It's been, it's been that about that. But uh, if I could ask you one last question... Um, do you have any advice for filmmakers such as myself and otherwise that are out there that might be listening to this to uh, about sallying forth in kind of hard times? You know what I mean? Because as, as hard as these times are, do you have any words of wisdom you would want to bestow upon them? Uh, yeah, I think the 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 best advice I could possibly give you is to uh Take advantage of every moment to create, to think about creating, to, uh, if you're stuck at home right now, uh, write or imagine a movie, or, you know, you, right now we're living in a time where uh, to actually shoot a film is about as cheap as it could possibly be. So if you have a film in mind and you have some friends who are actors, uh, you can basically put together a film. So uh, there's really not much of an excuse to not make movies. I mean, you know, the, you need money to to make like a a, a real film. You got to have money. You got to feed your cast and crew. But you can also make movies for almost no money if everybody's into it and wants to actually, you know, have a a piece of work that they can show. So and and disappointments and um, humiliations, all of that, you're going to encounter all of that in the course of making your movies and in, in any sort of creative life. But you have to constantly reinvent yourself and don't let yourself be broken down by those experiences, only get stronger. 
Oh, well, thank you very much. I uh, It's been a pleasure speaking with you and getting to interview. Thank you for giving me a, a, such a generous portion of your time. I appreciated your filmography uh, so far, and I very much look forward to all your future endeavors, especially Subspecies 5. Well, <laughs> thanks so much, Cameron. Okay. Right. Thank you very much. You have a great evening or um, say great, great day. (laughs) Okay. You too, man. I hope you survive the storms and uh, get back to work on your film. Okay, man. Take care. You too, sir. Thank you very much. Sure. Why have you come? You were banished from this place. Thank <laughs> you. 